0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and go to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. The focus of our message this morning will be on the 29th verse, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one that is provided for you. You'll find it in the pew rack in front of you or perhaps on the chair that you are sitting on and you will find Romans 8 on page 944, Romans chapter 8. And those of you who have been with us know that we have been in a series on Romans 8 that we've entitled More Than Conquerors. And we've taken that title from a verse near the end of the chapter in which Paul proclaims that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And this chapter, Romans 8, begins with this wonderful proclamation that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have the privilege of enjoying that message that if you are a believer in Christ this morning, there's no condemnation for you. Your sins have been forgiven. You have new life in Christ, and that's the unfolding theme throughout Romans 8. We have this new life, the chains that have bound us to sin have been shattered and broken, and now we're free to live lives to please God. But then Paul deals with this question that burns in the minds of so many people. If this is the case, if it is true that I have no more condemnation, that the, the ultimate consequences of my sin have been forgiven, then why do I suffer so much? Why do I still get sick? Why are my children in the condition they are in? Why am I still struggling in my job or in my marriage? Why all the problems of life? And here's where Paul says in verse 18 that he considers that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us because there is a coming glory for the children of God, and He unfolds what that glory means. It's a glory that's so weighty and so magnificent that all creation is groaning for it, that we ourselves, He says, are groaning for it, that the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words, with a prayer that is perfectly aligned with the will of God. And that's where Paul tells us something about God's plan. And you see this And those whom He called, He also justified and those whom He justified, He also glorified. And with these verses, we begun a little mini-series within this series on Romans 8, in which we're trying to explain and understand what is meant by this plan of God. And we're breaking it into five different parts that we see here in the text. And the first angle of God's good plan for us is our knowledge of God's plan, when Paul begins this section by saying, and we know. In contrast to the many things in life that we don't know, Paul says there is something that we do know, and that is that God has a good plan for our lives, our knowledge of this plan. Secondly, we see the recipients of this plan. So who is this for? This is for those who love God. Now, to be clear, it is not because people love God that God has a good plan for them. Rather, Paul clarifies this by saying those who are called according to His purpose, right? We love Him because He, what? First loved us, And so the good plan that God has is for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And third, we looked at the scope of God's plan. How much is God's plan able to encompass? How much does it include? Is it only the things that you see as good in your lives? It is is only the pieces of the puzzle that you can figure out and get together. No, it's everything. It's the dark parts, it's the light parts, it's the painful parts, it's the parts that give pleasure. It's everything. The scope of God's plan includes every single part of your life. There's no wasted pieces in God's plan. That's the scope of God's plan. The fourth angle is the outcome of God's plan. Where is all this leading? What is this glory that is to come? What is this plan that God has and what is it accomplishing in our lives? Here it is. It's described as good in verse 28, but that's not good on our own terms, right? We can't just import all the ideas that we have about good and say, oh, that must be what God is, God's plan is for, what I can see as good. No, no. It's a very specific kind of good. In fact, it is the very best, and it is this to be conformed to the image of His Son, that's our good, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's His glory. Our good, His glory. That's the outcome of God's plan. And the next week, we're going to be looking at the certainty of God's plan, the certainty of God's plan. This will be a fun one. Those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. So this morning, we are going to focus on the outcome of God's plan. Okay, the outcome of God's plan, and that is to be conformed to His image. We're focusing on that phrase in verse 29, in order that He might to be uh, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That was by way of introduction. I want us to have a word of prayer. We would ask the Lord to work His Word into our hearts and lives. Let's bow together and pray. Our Father, we have already raised our hearts and minds and worship to You in song. We've already gotten a glimpse of the meaning of Your Word, and now we pray that this time would be so transforming for us as we just throw the doors of our hearts wide open to whatever You want to do in our lives. Lord, I pray that there would be no one in this room that would walk away unchanged, refusing the Word that You have for them. Lord, do the work in our hearts for which You sent Your Word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what's the best thing that could happen to me right now? What's the very best thing that could happen to me right now? I've asked myself that question. You know, someone might sigh, you're a student. The best thing that could happen to me right now is for summer vacation to be like right now. That's the best thing that could happen for me. A single person might say, I think the best thing that could happen to me right now is for me to be married. The best thing that could happen to me right now is that I would get over this sickness. The best thing that could happen to me right now is that I'd get a different job. The best thing that could happen to me right now is that I'd have some different life circumstances. You ever think, what is the best thing that could happen to me right now? But you know what? The best thing that could happen to you, the best thing that could happen to anybody or anything actually depends on what kind of thing that is. The best thing that could happen to a fish is for it to be in water, not so a cat. The best thing that could happen to an eagle is to be free to soar and build its nest on a craggy ledge. It's the best thing. Not so if it were a penguin. Right? The best thing that could happen to something, the best thing that could happen to anybody, depends on what kind of creature that thing is. And so when we think, what is the best thing that could happen to me, it depends on what kind of creature you are. The best thing that can happen to you depends on what God has meant you to be. And that's what Romans 8:29 informs us of. What God intends for people to be is to be conformed to the image of His Son. For believers, that is God's goal for your life, that you would bear ultimate Christ-likeness, that you would reflect His glory in the way that He intended you to do that's the best thing that could happen to you and i think this clarifies so much that's confusing in our lives because without this understanding okay this is god's plan for my life this is the outcome of my god's plan for my life we can get confused about the things that are going on in our lives we can call things bad that are actually good and we can call things good that are actually bad understanding What is best for you is not necessarily that vacation, it's not necessarily a different work schedule, it's not necessarily a promotion, it's not necessarily a higher academic degree, because all these twists and turns in the road of your life are leading toward one destination, and that is that you become like Jesus Christ. That is the best thing that could happen to you. I think there are three important reasons. Before I come to the main divisions of my sermon that it's it's essential for us to understand this as believers that the outcome of our lives the outcome of God's plan and one important reason is that it's a major theme throughout the Bible you read the Bible from beginning to end this whole idea of God's plan for human beings I mean it shapes the narrative of scripture from the first chapter of Genesis all the way to the last chapter of the book of Revelation what God's outcome for the lives of Of human beings is. That is a major theme all throughout Scripture. That's important for us to understand. If you're going to understand the Bible, you need to understand what God's intent for human beings is. And a second reason why it's important for us to understand this outcome that is conformity to the image of Christ is that it is the goal of true spiritual ministry. Anything that we do, even as a church right here, has this objective in mind, that the people that come, as a result, are drawn to Christ. I've, I've quoted this verse from Colossians chapter 1 many times to you, that the goal of my preaching is to proclaim Christ. As Paul says, we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom To what end? That we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. That is the goal of Christian ministry, the goal of the pulpit ministry here, the goal of our adult growth hour, the goal of our Sunday school classes for our children, the goal for our midweek connection. It's to do this one thing in your life, to make you more like Jesus. That's where all this is going. And without that, we shouldn't even have a ministry. This is the purpose of true spiritual ministry. It's not only the purpose of ministry in a church. If you're a parent of children, it should be the purpose of your parenting. I mean, what is your goal for your kids? It's not just that they survive. It's not just that you survive as a parent. No, the goal for your parenting as a Christian parent is to bring about Christ-likeness in the lives of your children, not just to, to nurture good citizens, although that may be part of it, but that those young people, those children would be more like Jesus. That's the goal of parenting. Even the goal of one-on-one relationships, when you as a believer interact with other believers, you should ask yourself this, is my influence in this person's life, is it making them more like Jesus? Because that's the outcome of God's plan for him. That's the intent of God's plan for her as friends, as fellow church members, as, as fellow attendees here. That should be our goal in our interactions with each other, Christ likeness. And so I could think of hardly anything more important to consider than what is the goal of God's, God's goal for our lives. It's the a theme throughout Scripture, it's the goal of true spiritual ministry, but here's a third reason. It is what God is up to in your life right now. If you're a believer in Christ, and you, you think, okay, what in the world is God doing in my life right now? L- let me tell you, upon the authority of the Word of God, here's what God is doing in your life. He is... Making you more like Jesus. Like that is God's purpose for all these circumstances in your lives right now. And if you want to know what God's up to in your life, you should understand this. It's that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. Have you ever visited a like a, a pottery place where there's a ceramic artist that's has a piece of clay on, on a wheel and is shaping that wheel. And if I when I visit, as I have, I visited a place like this, and, and the question in my mind is what is the potter doing? What plan does he have in mind? Where is all this going? As, as we consider like a lump of clay the pressure that God puts on our lives, we should be asking, where, where is all this going as we're spinning and whirling through our lives? What, what is God doing in our lives? It's this glorious outcome that you would bear the image of Christ. This is an incredibly important topic for us. But so often we lose sight of this final goal. And that's why it's so important for us to fix our attention on this phrase in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so I'm going to develop this in three parts, all right? The first part, we're going to talk about our story, and we're going to see this from the word image, our story. Second part will be focusing on those words of his son, so the savior our story, the savior and then finally, the third part's going to focus on that phrase, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and we'll call that His success. So, the three parts are our story, focusing on the word image. The second part is the Savior, focusing on the words of His Son, that's Jesus Christ. And the third is His success, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. First of all, our story. Our story. And to understand this, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, okay? So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. This idea of our being conformed to the image of Christ, I mean, when, when, you, when you rattle your pages in Romans 8, if you're alert to themes in the Bible, you're going to hear pages rattling in Genesis because this is a thread that goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, verses 26 and 27 explains God's purpose for human beings. Verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 records God's divine deliberation in which He says, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth.'" So, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. What we're talking about is the fact that human beings were created in the, what, image of God. Okay? You and I were created, say it with me, in the image of God. We bear God's image. Now, oceans of ink have been spilled by Bible scholars on trying to explain what this means. I will spare you from the inky waves. However, I think we can boil it down to just a couple main ideas. Because if you'll notice, this word image and likeness has to do with some kind of resemblance to God. It doesn't explain exactly what this resemblance is. We know that there's some sort of resemblance that human beings bear to God. And people try to figure out what exactly does this resemblance entail? Now, instead of using our imagination to figure this out, which is always a bad idea in Bible study, okay? Instead of using our imagination to try to figure this out, we should go to the text of Scripture, and we find these same two words, image and likeness, occur in Genesis chapter 5. So that will help us, give us a clue about what it means that we're created in the image of God. So go over to Genesis chapter 5, and you'll notice that in verse 3, it's speaking about Adam fathering a son named Seth. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, things were a little different back then, just by the way. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, oh, do you see it? In his own what? Likeness. And after his image. Okay, so right away we have a clue from Genesis chapter 5 about what it means in Genesis chapter 1 that you and I are created in the image of God. If it, Whatever else it means, it at least means this, that the resemblance that we bear to God is like the resemblance that a son bears to his father. So here is one aspect, one truth about what it means that we're created in the image of God. It means... That we have a certain relationship toward God. It means that whatever we are as creatures, we are created in such a way to enjoy a unique relationship with God. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. It means we have a special relationship with God. Now, this relationship is for a specific purpose. So if you're in Genesis chapter 5, go back to Genesis chapter 1. What is the purpose of the relationship that we have with God? Look at verse 26. Let's go back to this, these words of God in which He decides to create human beings. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then He begins another sentence, but this transition can actually be translated this way. Listen to these words. Let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they may have dominion. This is the force of this next sentence. It's it's the result of being made in the image and likeness of God is so that human beings may have dominion over the rest of creation. All right, so now we're getting a fuller picture of what it means that we're created in the image of God. Whatever it means that we're created in the image of God means we have some sort of resemblance to God, like the resemblance between a father and his son for a specific purpose, and that is that we may exercise dominion over the rest of the creation. So, Created in the image of God means that we have a relationship with God or we intended to have a relationship with God so that we can rule for God. We relate to God and we rule for God. Let them have dominion. We exercise influence over the rest of creation for the glory of God. And this explains later on in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, why the image of God is put forth as the reason why human life is so sacred. God condemns the killing of a human being and says, if anyone kills someone, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because he was created in the image of God. The image of God is what undergirds the sacredness, the sanctity of human life. Why? Because humans were created for a special relationship with God, to rule for God. There's a vertical dimension, relationship with God, and there's a horizontal dimension, ruling for the glory of God. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. But here's where things take a tragic turn, because you know the story. The serpent came and enticed Eve, and the serpent said to Eve that, that God knows that if you take this fruit and eat it, you will become like God's. Notice the irony of this. Adam and Eve were already in the image and likeness of God. And what Satan promised to Eve and Adam was that they could enjoy the resemblance to God, they could enjoy God-likeness apart from God breaking that vertical relationship, yet still having the horizontal dominion. And what happened? When Adam and Eve chose to step out from that relationship, everything else was corrupted too. And this is the state that you and I are in. We still bear the image of God. We were still intended for a relationship with God, intended to exercise dominion for the glory of God, but now because the relationship has been severed, the relationship has been distorted, mangled, twisted, everything else is off-center, everything else is haywire, everything else has been utterly corrupted and perverted. And this is the tragedy that human beings find themselves in today oriented toward a relationship with God, yet because of our sin, cut off of that relationship and unable to live out the purpose for which God created us. This is a great tragedy, and we see this in the world all around us. Everything that human beings put their hands to, there's something good and something beautiful and something commendable, and there's something interesting about what humans are capable of doing, but can you think of any human achievement that has not been twisted for self-centered ends? I mean, whether it be Buildings or books, the internet, social media, everything can be distorted for evil purposes. This is what it means for there to be an earth inhabited by people that are created in the image of God, and yet the image within them has been twisted, bent, like an axle that no longer moves the vehicle forward, but instead casts it from one side to the other. Yes, we still have the image of God within us, but the image has been ruined. Take King David, for example. Was David charged to exercise dominion for the glory of God? Yes, he was a king. And although that king did so many good things, in fact, he's referred to as the the ideal king throughout the history of Israel, all the other kings are compared against him, Yet, even King David used his authority, his God given dominion, for self centered ends. To take another man's wife and have that man killed to cover up his sin. I mean, that is, in a microcosm, what human beings do with the image of God, created in the image of God, yet using that image to serve our own purposes. Don't don't you see this in the world around us? Don't you see this in yourself? We are this bizarre alloy of greatness and wretchedness, and so what does our story tell us? It tells us this, that because of our sin, the image of God in us has been ruined, and that's where we need a Savior. We need to be changed. We need this image to be fixed, right? Right? I mean, doesn't it make sense to you, even without looking at the Bible, to have heard the explanation that we're created in the image of God for the glory of God? You look at the world around you, you're like, yes, that makes total sense, but there's something wrong with us. We need that image to be restored. And here's where Christ comes in because Christ is the perfect Son of God. Remember, we said that what it means to be created in the image of God is to enjoy a special relationship with God as his sons and daughters, just like the resemblance that Seth had toward Adam was like the resemblance that we and ha- you and I have toward God. It, Jesus comes as the perfect Son of God. Remember when He emerged out of the waters of His baptism at the age of 30, at the beginning of His earthly ministry, there came a voice from heaven, and there came a, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the voice said, this is my what? Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God didn't say that about any other human being. In fact, that beloved son, as Luke goes on to record, he was, went into the wilderness, and then at the end of 40 days, the devil came and tempted Jesus, just like the devil came and tempted Adam and Eve, and every single temptation, Jesus resisted perfectly. Jesus did what human beings, mere human beings, could not do. And that is, stand against the temptation of the devil. He is the perfect Son of God. He is the perfect image of God. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in chapter 1 and verse 3, that he is the exact representation of the nature of God. He perfectly reveals God because he perfectly resembles God because he is God. He enjoys a perfect relationship with God. As he says in John chapter 8 and verse 29, I always do the things that please my Father. I mean, you talk about that vertical relationship that we're supposed to have because of our being created in the image of God. Jesus did it perfectly. And what about that horizontal relationship? Jesus did that perfectly too. We read in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus submitted himself to God, and he did the ultimate act of obedience. He submitted himself to the very point of death on the cross. No one else in all of history has been asked to do something that difficult. Jesus did it. And now, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, God has given him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. He is Master. He is Sovereign. He rules because He enjoys a perfect relationship with God. That is Jesus Christ, the exact image of God, the Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. So only in becoming like Jesus can we perfectly glorify God. Jesus is is the one who restores in us the brokenness that we feel every single day. We need a Savior, and because of Jesus, the image of God in us can be restored. Because of Jesus, the image of God in us can be restored. That which was mangled and broken and twisted now can be straightened because of Jesus. He perfectly revealed God. He will perfectly reign for God, and that means that you and I must become like Jesus. We must become like Jesus. Where does this start? Where does the path of becoming more like Christ starts? It starts when a person puts his or her trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. That's where it begins. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. What kind of new things? You're a new creature in Christ. A new creation. And only then can you begin to bear the image of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9 and 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the, get this, image of its creator. That's what's happening to believers in Christ. There is a renewing process going on in your life through the work of God, through the work of His Holy Spirit, through the influence of the Word of God. It is you are being renewed into the image that you were originally intended to bear because of Jesus' work in your life. That's where it starts. How does it continue? Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 4 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after, listen to the terms here, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is what's going on in the lives of believers. We're becoming more like what God originally intended us to be. And we only do that through Jesus Christ who is the true image of God, the true Son of God. But it's a process Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You want to become more like Jesus? This ever stir in your heart, this, this desire, okay, yeah, that is what my life is all about. That is where, that's the only source of true joy and satisfaction and contentment. Just like we've been singing, you want to become more like Jesus? Here's, here's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen when you behold the glory of the Lord. How do you behold the glory of the Lord? He reveals it in this book, it's right in Scripture. You want to see the face of Jesus? You want to see the glory of God? Take time every single day to open this book and read it and see Jesus, and what a Savior He is, how perfect He is. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on the glory. And as you are exposed to that glory like a photographic plate in sunlight, you will be transformed increasingly day by day into the image of Jesus Christ, which is what God intends for your life. That's where all this is going become more like Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to another. But when will this be completed? When will this finally reach its consummation? John writes in his first epistle in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. You are, if you're a believer in Christ, you are God's children now. But it does not appear, as John writes, what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Like right now, we we don't have the full, unhindered vision of Christ that we will have, but when we will have that, we will be completely changed so that the words of Romans 8 verse 29 are completely fulfilled, that we will be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what God is doing in your life. That's the outcome of God's plan. You go back to Romans chapter 8. Where is all this leading then? It's to the glory of God, it's his success in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There are two things you should understand about this the fact that it says that Jesus is the firstborn. Does not mean that he was a first creature as if he was created by God in chronology. Firstborn refers to rank, not time. It means that he exists in a category of his own. He is God. And yet, it says that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So while he is in a category of his very own, he is fully God, yet he is also fully man. You see how important it is to get that right? Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man. And when in glory, He is surrounded by a vast throng of brothers and sisters who through their lives have become increasingly like Him, He will be glorified as as He should be. That's how we glorify God, by becoming more like Jesus Christ, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, going back to the question we asked at the beginning, what's the best thing that could happen to me? You know, sometimes we're not really good at answering that question. Because what we think is the best thing that could happen to us is really not. But when you understand this, anything that makes you more like Jesus is the best thing that could happen to you. Anything that works to shape you to become more like Christ more loving toward other people, more obedient to God as your Father, more faithful, more joy-filled, more patient, whatever God is doing in your life to make you more like Jesus, that's the best thing that could happen to you because that's God's final destiny for you. And, And here's the thing I want you to take away with you from all this, that you must make your final destiny your daily priority. You must make your final destiny, that is Christlikeness, your daily priority. When I was a teenager, somebody gave me the book, Shadow of the Almighty by Elizabeth Elliot. It contains dozens and dozens of excerpts from the journal of her late husband, Jim, who was killed at the age of 28. When he was 20 years old, he wrote these words had fellowship in prayer with a friend and discussion of the things of God, a happy experience, and then he turns to prayer in his journal. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn up for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Eight years later, his body was half-submerged in the waters of the Curaray River. Was that a waste? All throughout his life, he was pursuing to be Christ-likeness. In fact, he himself wrote earlier that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Whatever ever happens in your life to make you more like Jesus, that's the best thing that could happen to you. Are you pursuing that now? Are you making your final destiny your daily priority. You know the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness? It's a very common and loved hymn. The man who wrote that hymn also wrote another one that's less known. It goes like this, O oh, to be like Thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures, Jesus, Thy perfect likeness to wear. O oh, to be like The blessed Redeemer, pure as Thou art, come in Thy sweetness, come in Thy fullness, stamp Thine own image deep on my heart. That should be the prayer of every believer. Is it your prayer?